Um, Hebrews chapter 2 is where we find ourselves again this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. I cannot believe I already said it was Christmas and it was over. And man, the pastor who robbed Christmas. Look, it, it hasn't happened yet. I get it. Thanksgiving. It was too much turkey, right? Isn't there some enzyme where you're in sleep mode? I've got to wake up myself. All right. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Follow as I read. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that... He helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." The human condition can be described as fighting against what enslaves you most while fighting for your freedom to live. We're fighting against being enslaved or what is enslaving us and we're fighting for freedom in this life. Whatever level people are aware of this human struggle, people are doing this. The whole human race is made up of people winning and losing in life on varying degrees all of the time. People are always winning and losing, whether they know it or not, in terms of a struggle like this one. Everyone is enslaved to something unless they know the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our secret weapon, is it not, as the Christian? We still struggle against what enslaves us or what shouldn't be enslaving us. And we fight for freedom. We fight for the freedom to live our Christian life and to live in joy in the Lord. But our secret weapon is found in a person and it is the only person who can free you from what enslaves and that is sin. And free you for a life of meaning and purpose. You know why you're here. You know who you are. You know what your mission is. You know what your calling is. You know what your duty is. You know who your commander in chief is. We have the categories of life defined by the secret weapon who is the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Here's a way to encapsulate the message of this morning. You are truly free to live only when you know your life's not over when you die. You are truly free to live only when you know that life is not over when you die. In other words, you're living in light of eternity. Paul said it this way, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain, right? Chapter 2 applies what it means that Jesus became fully human. We've learned from chapter 1 that he is fully God, creator, savior, sustainer, God. Chapter 2 is emphasizing that he, unlike angels, 
is not only God, but he also, unlike angels, is fully human, fully man. As I said last week, Jesus is as human as you are. He's still that way. He's fully human. And he became fully human for an express purpose, and that is in his humanity, he wants to make you fully free in this life, free from the slavery of sin that leads to death. So here's my question. How far did Jesus go when he came here to make you free? How far did he go when he became a man taking on humanity? Well, point one, this is how far he went. Verse 14, he destroyed your greatest enemy. It says, Therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Whether you know it or not, your greatest enemy is the devil. Now, you know that as a Bible Christian, a Bible believing Christian, you know that on paper, don't you? Yes, the devil is my greatest enemy. But do you live in light of that knowledge? Do you go beyond the mythical characterization of the devil in your mind, really? Do you really understand that Satan is beyond mythology and is real? Now, we know that in terms of what the Bible says, but do you know it in terms of your personal experience? That you're fighting against a foe, and your greatest foe is the tempter, the accuser, the slanderer, the devil, Slewfoot, the angel of light, Lucifer, as the Latin language puts it. He is trying to deceive you. He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He is the father of lies, right? He's the dragon who led a third of the angels into eternal condemnation. His doom is sure, and he will eternally be in hell forever and ever. Not as the commander lord over hell, but as the sufferer in hell for what he deserves. Those in the demons and those whom he has deceived will be dying there forever, not annihilated, but suffering there forever for all of eternity. This is your enemy. This is the one who wields real meaningful influence in our world. He's called the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He is the Lord of darkness. But he's also called in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen an angel of light because he is a fallen angel. Hebrews has been talking about angels, how powerful angels can be. And Satan is a clear picture of how powerfully influential an angel can be This is Satan. This is the one who is just really harmless, right? Like Flip Wilson said, the devil made me do it, which means nothing. He means I don't believe in the devil and I'm not responsible for what I'm doing. Ha, ha, ha. That's what that means. How harmless is Satan? Well, he's not harmless at all. He wants to rob your joy, render you powerless as a believer, He can't touch your eternal destiny, but he can influence you to sin, to flatten the tires on your vehicle, metaphorically speaking. 
His goal is in this world to keep unbelievers spiritually dead and to keep them deceived about how dangerous their dead state really is. He wants them to fear physical death in a way that they ignore spiritual death so that when they physically die, they will spiritually be dead for all of eternity spiritual and eternal death forever and ever. That's his goal. How's he doing? How's he doing? How many of us are here this morning? You know, a couple hundred, right? How many of of the populace is out there? I mean, we're being, you know, deceived at varying levels by Satan in a daily basis, on a daily basis, but think of the deception influence that Satan has out there with those people. He's doing a good job at what he's doing. It is working, but he won't win. It seems odd to admit that Satan wields the power of death. The verse, this verse says he wields the power of death when we know that God is the sovereign over all of life and death. And yet, Man sinned in the garden and mankind with that sin fell. And because of that sin, God allowed for a judgment to be given, a sowing and reaping judgment on mankind for what he earned. Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is death. What was earned at that sin at that fall is death. And so God allowed Satan to have a domain and a dominion over this world as a reaping judgment, as a cost, as a penalty for sin. And that's what we understand in our world. Job um, was given over at a point in a, in a very similar sense to the devil to undergo pain and suffering. Job 2, 6, behold, he is in your hand. Job didn't sin and cause this in the same way, but we understand that as Luther put it, the devil is God's devil. God allows for Satan to do this for his purposes. But he didn't leave this problem unresolved. God sent his son into the fray, into the warfare on a rescue mission to save those who would turn from Satan, from sin to Christ. And that's what verse 14 is saying. It's, it says, for since the children, children hearkening back to the reference of Isaiah chapter eight eighteen, that's quoted in verse 13 of chapter two, you see that right above verse 14. The children are believers. Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. Uh, people who are believers have human flesh and human blood, and they have a circulatory system. They, they're alive as human persons. And he, Christ himself, likewise, partook of the same things. Jesus Christ took on flesh. He, he took on a circulatory system. He took on humanity. He took on a human nature, just like the children who share flesh and blood in koine, in common with each other. Jesus partook of the same things. The word same things here is is interesting, or the word partook of the same things. The word partook means that Jesus, he took on what wasn't prior to that moment his. He took on something that was foreign unto himself. 
he being fully divine took on a human nature also. Interestingly, he took on the human nature so that he could die for us so that we could inherit a divine nature. First Peter 1.14. Isn't that interesting? It's the great exchange. It's amazing. But Jesus did that for us as a rescue mission, taking on something that was foreign. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So he took something on to accomplish a mission. You know what this means? This means that Jesus was born in this world on a rescue mission that was meant for him to die in this world and then be raised. He was born to die. He came here to die. He came here on a mission of self-sacrificial mercy for you and for me. Why? Because he had to destroy the devil. And the only way he could destroy the devil was to dismantle his weapon. And the only way to dismantle death was for Jesus to die. So Satan wields the power of death. So Jesus had to answer this power by dying, by dying. So what sense is Satan destroyed? Isn't he a roaring lion who roams and roars and tempts and sends fiery darts and deceives and disrupts the church and and is blinding the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4? Isn't he doing all this damage now? Well, yes, he is. But he's destroyed in the ultimate sense. At the cross, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. Amen? Isn't that a beautiful picture? Genesis 3.15, the serpent's head is crushed. If I didn't want you to shock, I would like stomp the ground really big right now, right? I mean, it's crushed. And that means that Satan's doom is sure. It is certain. He is condemned. The picture of Satan falling like lightning is him being thrust out of heaven, but it's also a foreshadowing of his certain damnation in hell forever and ever. And we know that's true. I also had mentioned that he's trying to drag as many unbelievers down there with him as he's going down. At the same time, he's rendered powerless to take your believing soul with him to hell. Your salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Greater is Christ who is in you than he, the devil, who is in the world, right? His influence is out there and it can't touch the signed, sealed, and delivered inheritance that you have as a saint in God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Nothing can. Nothing can take away your salvation. No one can pluck you from the Father's hand. Nothing. Not angels, not devils, not principalities. Nothing. You are secure. That's what it means that Jesus destroyed Satan. He destroyed him in that moment. He didn't annihilate him into nothingness. He still is here. He'll still make a second appearance at the millennial kingdom at the end. But ultimately, if you read the end of the story, he's cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So Satan's temptations are still alive. So how are we supposed to face them? The fiery arrows are still being flung 
So how strong should we we be in the face of them? Well, verses 15 and 16 answer this. It says that, again, he would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. The key word here for me in verse 15 is fear, fear. Second word to note is slavery. There's a, there's a fear slavery dynamic that is going on in the lives of unbelievers. And I would venture to say even as believers, we still have a great deal of fear that we're dealing with in our lives. So what is the greatest fear that Christ delivered you from as a believer? Is it the fear of heights? I mean, if you do a Google search, right, death is about number five, right? I did it last night. But, you know, is it the fear of spiders, you know, an arachnophobic? Um, Public speaking is number one. It's the scariest thing in the world to do. I'm terrified. No, I have no idea. I don't get it. That's just because I say whatever comes to my mind and just go with it. But I think for a lot of people, it's terrifying to feel... um, like shame or, or feel like you're being mocked or, or something like that. Well, the Bible says here, man's greatest fear is death. Job calls it, in a sense, the king of terrors, Job eighteen fourteen. It's too simplistic, though, to marginalize the fear of death to just physical death. There's a lot of people who actually are not afraid to die, There are people who are not afraid of the physical pain of death. There are a lot of people who are. I think that's included here. But that's too simplistic in terms of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. What Satan wields here in terms of the fear of death dynamic. You remember in the Garden of Eden that Satan's first temptation was to Eve. And he said, look, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of this fruit, you will not surely die. And so he's bringing up the issue of death. He's trying to, in one sense, twist the fear up and say, look, the fear of the consequences of death can be dismantled here. There are no consequences, really. Really, what I'm saying is that you're going to be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You'll be on par with God. Satan's saying, just do what I did. People fear the consequences of death and they get hung up with that. And a lot of times they twist it up in their own thinking and say, you know what? Nothing really is going to happen to me when I die. And so I'm going to numb myself to this fear and believe that I'm missing out and just live for today and believe that really nothing's going to happen to me at all when I die. It's the temptation to sin now, to capitulate, to sell out in this life. It comes from believing that life ends at death. It's really over. Live for today. Then there's also the idea of physical death. There are people who are afraid of physical death. Perhaps the, the early Christians here were afraid of martyrdom. No one had died so far. And if, if, if the author's talking to Christians in Rome, at this point they hadn't suffered persecution, but it was coming. It was near from Nero and it was coming, but they weren't... Um, perhaps really looking forward to that. And so there was a fear of death there. Perhaps they wanted to sell out 
and capitulate or say, you know, I'm not really a believer at all. It might have been very tempting for them. It would be very tempting, by the way, in our culture because we have not suffered physical persecution here as Christians as yet to capitulate, to fear physical death. And Satan wants to wield that in our lives, to fear persecution, to fear being marginalized at work. He wants you to fear losing relationships Um, For the sake of Christ, he wants you to fear saying the hard thing to your kids that you need to say or the hard thing to your spouse that you need to say for fear of harming a relationship. He wants you to fear persecution. That's attached to this fear of death dynamic, fear of loss, fear of separation. Fear of death can also take the form of the fear of the unknown. Fearing death is like a a passive sense where people fear the idea that if they die, they have no idea what's going to happen to them when they die. They don't know where they're going to go. They don't know who's going to be there. So they become paralyzed in this life, fearing the great beyond. They're trying to keep themselves alive as long as possible with as many drug and, and health aids as possible to keep them from facing the unknown. That kind of paralysis is bound up in this temptation scheme of Satan with the fear of death. He wants to hold people in paralysis from believing or from growing as a Christian. He wants to also try to cause people to try to earn their way to a better death by religious works and religious duties. All of the religious system that's outside of Christ, any cult religion or any religion in the name of Christianity that's works-based is a false religion. It's the idea of trying to keep people who are afraid of dying to, to try to make their afterlife as good as it possibly can be. Then there are people who ultimately just give over in their passivity and they're through fearing hell. They just believe they're destined for hell and they've clearly accepted that they're on the road to perdition. Who knows somebody like that? You don't have to raise your hand, but we know people who just say, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. If hell is waiting for me, I'm going to just earn it and I'm going to just go all out and sin as horribly as I possibly can. This is what happens in the mind of someone who becomes so sociopathic that they do unspeakable things. They've given over. They're on the road to perdition. They're Judas Iscariot. They sell out the Lord Jesus Christ in horrific ways in this world. This is the Catch 22, it's the sin cycle scenario that people find themselves in. They sin because they're fearing death. They're not comfortable with death. They're not accepted in the afterlife in their mind. They don't know where they're going when they die. And so they just give over and sin and sin and sin. John Owen, the great Puritan Oxford scholar said, all Satan's power over death is founded in sin. Obligation of the sinner to death is what gave Satan his power. Satan wants to be the godfather in your life. He wants to own you in your sin. Do you get that? He wants to own you. Oh, you're afraid of death. You're afraid of the afterlife. You're afraid of the unknown. You're afraid of the consequences that could happen. You're afraid of uh, losing out in this life. You're afraid of being shortchanged. You're afraid your life's not going to be long enough. You're afraid that your loved ones are going to die. You're paralyzed in fear. So just sin it out. Just sin it. Just sin away. 
That's the fear power and that's the obligation. And once you start sinning and once you become a sin addict, you're in this sin cycle where the wages of sin is death and you know you've earned that death and you're just in this death obligation cycle where you feel like you are owned by the God of this world. And guess what? If you're trapped in that sin cycle, you are owned by Satan right now. That's how influential he is. That's how powerful this angel of light is. That's how deceptive he is. But this sin cycle can be broken. You've known people who are on their deathbed who are looking forward to eternity, haven't you? Have you ever experienced that? I just got to experience that, and many of us did, with the death of Eileen Starr, a missionary lady who had given her life and a life of singleness to service to the Lord. But one of the greatest examples and missions that she accomplished was the way that she died. We want to live in the way that she died because once she was terminal, she wasn't looking forward to the pain of the cancer that she was undergoing, but she was very much looking forward to heaven face-to-face with Christ in eternity. To look into her eyes as her body was, was waning, as her outer tent was failing, was to look into someone who was anticipating, into the eyes of someone who was anticipating being with the Lord Jesus Christ. People who are terminal, who are in the Lord, show us what it means to not be enslaved to sin and not to be enslaved to the fear of death. People who've lost loved ones, people who've lost friends, people who've lost a spouse, a child, who are in the Lord, they understand what it means to truly live by not being enslaved. They understand what it means to have shared experiences and care for people and and not live for money and live for um, superficiality and outward securities, but to live for Christ and to live in light of what really, truly matters. We'll look at verse, the next verse. For surely it is not angels that he helps. He wasn't, Jesus didn't die for the devil. He didn't die for angels. He didn't take on angel matter. He took on flesh and blood to die for human people who would be believers. He died for people. And verse 17, that's, that's the point. Verse 16, that's the point. He helps not angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who are the offspring of Abraham? According to Galatians 3 and other places, Romans 4, the offspring of Abraham are those who are believers. Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteous. If anyone who's a human person believes, that's the one for whom Jesus rescues. That's the one he applies the cross to. And that's the one who is saved. That's the point here of verse 16. Those who were in lifelong slavery in the cycle of sin, the ones who believe are the ones whose cycle is broken. The wages of sin is death cycle is just eradicated in a moment if you are the offspring of Abraham, if you will believe. An angel, sadly, and you just have to understand this, an angel who has been condemned is eternally condemned already. They can't believe into heaven. 
Salvation is a mystery. It is profound. It is grace. From a human standpoint, it's not fair. We don't deserve grace, but it's given to us as the gift of life because Jesus went all the way in humanity for you and for me. How human did Jesus become? He became as human as you and I are so that he could die for our sins. It's amazing. It's amazing. What does this look like? Well, look at verse 17. He has met your greatest need. He's destroyed your greatest enemy. He's defeated your greatest sin. And he's met your greatest need. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What's your greatest need? You say, well, it's money, of course, right? Uh, no. What, no, if you were asking the world, they would say something like that. What's your greatest need? I need a vacation, right? I, I need out of my job situation. I need a different wife or a different husband. I need different children. I need a different situation. I want a different circumstance. I need health. I need this disease to be cured in my life. Right? What is your greatest need? Your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins against a holy, eternal God. That's your greatest need. That's your greatest need. And here in verse 17, again, picking up on the humanity, the full humanity of Christ. This is the author of Hebrews explaining what it means that Jesus becoming fully human died for you. What that means. The process of salvation through the lens of the humanity of Christ. What do I mean by that? It means this. Salvation, your salvation was very, very, very personal to the Lord. Uh, We're not talking about theological logic here when we say that, you know, okay, on paper, you know, uh, Jesus is fully God, fully man, um, so that he could be divine to you know, absorb an eternal payment and, and fully human so that logically he'd be able to physically die. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So he had to physically die. Um, check, check, check. That had to happen so that then you could be rescued because, you know, Adam under the federal headship that he wielded, you know, millennia ago, he sinned. And, and then that, you know, created sin in your world. And that had to be dealt with and check, check, check. And now as a result, you are signed, sealed, and delivered for heaven. All that is true, and it's important to understand in terms of a theological curriculum, but that is not what the author is doing here in verse 17. In verse 17, he's making the case that Jesus became sympathetic over you, empathetic over you. He cares for you. He loves you. He knows you. He came for you. He rescued you. He, he, he became human like you to save you. That's what's going on in verse 17. That's the point. He had to be made like his brothers. You remember in verse 11, it says, um, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's unashamed of you. He embraces you. He wanted to save you. He became like you in every respect so that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest. It, it's so that he could become, that word merciful is empathy. It's so that he could become empathetic. So that he could relate to you. Salvation is authentic. It's genuine. He's relating to your needs. He knows where you are hurting this morning and cares to enter into that hurt and lift you up in it. And he did so in his salvation work. And I just think that's so important for you to understand. He is a high priest who came to break the sin cycle in your life. He's a human priest. What does that mean? Well, it means that he, as a human high priest, was able to reach down to you and stand in the gap and reach up to God and say, save this one. The earlier verse is in the context is he's, God is sweeping people into the kingdom. He's bringing many sons to glory. Well, he did that through an intercessor, a high priest. A high priest in the Old Testament system is an intermediary. It's a go-between. He became the bridge, the means, the way for you to be saved. You, like me, should be sitting there going, look, I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve grace. I have been wrapped up in sin cycles that either were formerly broken or still need to be broken. Who is this man who is also God who became a high priest in a meaningful, personal, empathetic way for me? Who is this that would do something like that for me? That's the amazing grace that's found in Hebrews. Became like a faithful high priest. He's Uh, Later, it's explained over and over again how he's from the line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king priest who has a mysterious origin founded back in Genesis where Abraham was making sacrifices to God through Melchizedek. And because it's a mysterious background that's not connected to the Aaronic priesthood, Melchizedek is a perfect prefiguring of Christ. He's a type of Christ. Christ is in the line of Melchizedek. Christ is the perfect king and perfect priest, but different from Melchizedek in the sense that Christ is also the sacrifice himself. He's not only the sacrificer, Christ became the lamb sacrifice for your sins. And you see that here. He's a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In the service of God is prostantheon. He's giving a sacrifice which is himself to God. Why is that important? Because of the next word which is to make propitiation for our sins or for the sins of the people. This is the language of Leviticus. Propitiation has two ideas in one word. First of all, it's the word expiation. Expiation is coming from the original Greek language. It just means to remove your sins. Your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west at the cross. Do you realize that? Once you repent because of the cross, your sins are gone. They're covered. They're washed away. You are made white as snow. The, the sin debt that was against you is canceled. It's broken. Do you see that? Your sins are gone. That's propitiation. But another word associated with propitiation is satisfaction. Satisfaction. Well, who's satisfied with the cross? 
Well, God the Father. God the Father, when you sinned against him in his holiness, he has wrath against you. In Romans, it says that there is a a wrath judgment that is held against unbelievers in this world, Romans chapter 3. We are under judgment, Romans chapter 1, until we accept Christ and this sacrifice, until we believe and it's counted to us as righteousness, until God's wrath is satisfied by your faith in the sacrifice. So in one sense, as one person put it, Christ not only died for you and your sins, Christ also died for God the Father. Christ died for God in the sense of satisfying his wrath. He stood in your place. Think about it. It's like there's this, there's this eternal, like, just, just flame coming down at you, against you. Not to annihilate you, but to inflame you in hell forever and ever. And it's, it's aimed at you. You're in the crosshairs. You sinned against God who is eternal. You did the one thing that you could not do, but you did do. That counts for all of eternity. And you're standing there and just as the flame is shot out from heaven as a flamethrower against you. God the Son stands and absorbs it on your behalf and takes it all perfectly and dies and is able to be that sacrificial lamb and then rises again, showing that it's conquered, it's done away with forever and ever. Propitiation was done for you. But it wasn't done again in a textbook sense. This was done empathetically. It was a mission of love and mercy. Christ's empathy while dying for you means that his empathy remains on you and for you as a believer now in this life. And that's the point of the next verse in verse 18. He wasn't only empathetic in saving you. He's empathetic in helping you. Why is that important? Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So here's the question. If Jesus resolved your greatest foe, he destroyed the devil, your greatest fear, he destroyed the fear of death, and then your greatest, he's met your greatest need, then will you be willing to trust Jesus to meet you in the middle of your greatest struggle? If Jesus has reconciled your life to come, then will he also not reconcile and help you in your struggles in this life now? That's what you have to ask yourself. Perhaps this is the pivotal convicting moment in your life in the sermon. Yeah, check. I believe Jesus destroyed the devil, or at least ultimately he's destroyed. He can't touch me. I can't be separated from Christ. I'm going to heaven. He did that. He has um, taken care of my greatest fear. I understand where I'm going when I die. And then he's met my greatest need. He's, He's created the propitiation for all my sins. All my sins are done away with. I'm clear. I'm secure for heaven. I'm on my way. God's wrath is satisfied. He loves me. 
and you believe all of that, and you even believe that Jesus was empathetic in all of that, you've personalized all of that, now will you trust him with tomorrow? Will you trust him with the issues of now? He's resolved the future, the next life, but will you allow for him and his power to work in your life for this life now as an empathetic high priest, one who loves you? Point four, he will carry you through your greatest struggle. Might be easy to leave Jesus as a pragmatist, working a process, accomplishing a mission, and then moving on. But that's not who Jesus is. Listen to William Barclay, what he said about Jesus and what he says about empathy. Well, let me start with this. Jesus hungered. He was thirsty. He grew. He loved. He became fatigued. He was angry, indignant, loved um, people. He loved his father. He was astonished when his disciples wouldn't believe. He was glad. He was sarcastic at points. He was grieved. He exercised faith. He was troubled. He prayed. He sighed. He cried out with heartache. He had sympathy that was authentic. Well, Barclay says this about sympathy. Um, Jesus literally feels with man and mankind It's impossible to understand another person's sorrows unless they've been brought through them. A person without a trace of nerves has no conception of what it means to be tortured by nervousness. A person who is perfectly physically fit has no concept of what it means to be weary. Um, A person who is easily tired or not pain-free, unless you've gone through that, you can't understand it. A person who learns easily often cannot understand why someone who is slow finds it so difficult, things so difficult. A person who's never sorrowed cannot understand the pain at the heart of a person whose life grief has come. A person who's never loved can never understand either the sudden, I'm sorry, a person who has never loved can never understand either the sudden glory or the aching loneliness of a lover's heart. Before we can have sympathy, we must go through the same things the other person has gone through, and that is precisely what Jesus did. Put another way, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the beginning opens with that God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to, in this comfort, comfort others who are in the same affliction with the comfort wherein we have been comforted. Do you remember that verse? Do you remember that passage? God puts us through things so that we can relate to other people. And that's the same ministry that Jesus has in your life. Jesus was tempted at all points yet without sin in full humanity so that he can carry you. Specifically in verse 18, the suffering here and the temptation was the temptation to leave the faith. It's suffering persecution where you want to quit. But Jesus, it says in verse 18, is able to help those who are being tempted. The word able is dunamai. It means that he empowers those who are being tempted. Remember at the beginning when I said, you're only truly free to live in this life when you know that it's not over when you die. What does it mean to live in this life in total freedom where the sin cycle is broken? It's where you say to live is Christ and Christ is my sympathetic, faithful, empowering high priest. 
Look, Jesus' empathy isn't this. He's not just whispering in your ear going, I understand how you feel. And I know it's really hard. Keep going. That's not Jesus. Jesus is saying, I understand how you feel. I know it's really hard. Rely on me and my power and my strength to make it through, to not quit, to keep going, to persevere. That's the power of Christ. That's what we have at our disposal. It's time to enjoy our lives as we suffer for Christ because life doesn't end when we die. To live is Christ and to die is gain and eternity is now and in the future.